0: If I were to ask you, right now, to think of one president, who comes to mind? Let me take a guess. Benjamin Harrison. No? Let me try again. Rutherford B. Hayes. No again? Uh, Grover Cleveland. Chester A. Arthur? Okay, at this point, you, who obviously thought of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, FDR, JFK, or maybe even Ronald Reagan, are snapping your fingers and tell me to get to my point, and quickly. You can always listen to a different podcast, after all. Well, before you skip me to listen to the next guy in your feed, my point is simple. During what we now call the Gilded Age, roughly 1877 to 1896, the country went through a series of relatively weak presidents— Despite the fact that voter turnout for presidential elections was high, and presidents were elected by relatively slim margins, the people who did get into office simply didn't have the force of personality of a Teddy Roosevelt or an Andrew Jackson. There are a number of reasons for this, of course, but that's not why we're here today. So before you are tempted to skip to the next podcast for the second time in as many minutes, let's get back on topic. Because the question we have to ask is this. If we have a series of relatively weak presidents vying for an office that will spend a couple decades seesawing between the top political parties, what does that mean for the men those weak presidents will appoint to be governor of Arizona? I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 132 The Revolving Door. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we took a high level view of Arizona's political position as it tried to position itself for eventual statehood, only for the muckety mucks back east to look down on them and their love of silver. This week, I want to narrow our focus back down to the territorial level as we look at the various stiff political winds that were buffeting those in the top office. Because these years are really characterized by a revolving door of mostly forgettable chief executives, who were quickly replaced due to the eternal struggle between Republicans and Democrats at both the national and local level. Last time we checked in, the outgoing governor was Conrad Zulik, who had lost his seat because Benjamin Harrison had become president and wanted to appoint a Republican. At the same time, however, there was a growing clamor from citizens in Arizona for home rule. It's not that surprising that no one who has held the governorship so far has been born in Arizona, but the people were asking for someone who had at least been there before and was actively trying to improve it. Up to this point, with limited exceptions, all they had gotten was carpetbaggers from back east who took up the position just because they thought it would be a cushy gig. In 1889, the Arizona Daily Citizen newspaper took up this cause, going so far as to remind the president-elect that one of the planks of the Republican Party in the 1888 election was that all officers of territories preparing for statehood should be selected from bona fide residents of that territory. And Harrison would indeed select from a handful of Arizona residents, including from former Governor Anson P.K. Safford, Safford's candidacy was sunk, however, when a letter came to light that he had written to the Southern Pacific Railroad. This is the source of an amusing exchange where the governor had only used a small portion of bribe money from the railroad, explaining that Arizona lawmakers were cheaper than the railroad had expected. Eventually, Harrison would choose the first governor to actually be an Arizona resident when he was appointed, a man named Louis Wolfley. Wolfley had been born in Philadelphia in 1839 and had been educated as a civil engineer. His career had taken several twists and turns, including working for railroads in Iowa and Ohio, becoming a major in the Army during the Civil War, then a federal revenue officer in New Orleans, and finally mining in Colorado and eventually in Arizona. Wolfley's nomination, however, did drag up some past bad feelings. A few vested interests didn't like some of his surveying work and did their level best to discredit him, going so far as to say that he had been fired from his stint as a revenue officer in New Orleans, and that he had taken bribes from a certain distiller who wished to be left alone. Another thorn in his side was a man named Brewster Cameron, whose family claimed the San Rafael land grant in southern Arizona. Wolfley, who had been on good terms with Brewster and his family, had been hired to do some surveying work in 1885 which included finding the original deeds to the land. And according to Cameron, Wolfley then came back from investigating in Mexico to claim that he had found certain information that could cloud the Cameron's claim to the grant. This information he would keep to himself if Brewster and his family paid him $1,000. Now, I can't find anything that backs up this claim, but that's the story Cameron ran with. Even roping in his uncle, a powerful U.S. senator from Pennsylvania, and writing letter after letter to block Wolfley's nomination. Historian Jay Wagner says it's more likely that Cameron believed that the new governor would not support the extensive land claims by his business, the San Rafael Cattle Company, and that's why he fought so hard against Wolfley's nomination. But despite all these spurious charges, Wolfley's appointment was eventually confirmed, and he headed back to Arizona from Washington, D.C., where he had been lobbying for the position except here he stepped into yet another storm. Because when Wolfley had been named governor, the 15th Territorial Legislature had already gotten started. This mainly Republican body naturally wanted to greet their new Republican governor and do as little as possible under the outgoing Democratic administration. But Zulik would not have that, so he made a declaration that would complicate matters for some time to come. Basically, he declared that the 15th Territorial Legislature couldn't welcome the new governor because they could only be in office 60 days. So that meant it couldn't conduct any business after March 21st, 1889. And when he said 60 days, he meant 60 days in total, including weekends and holidays. This interpretation of the law was a fairly controversial one, and it's entirely possible that Zulek was grasping at legal straws. And the legislators all scoffed at this declaration, saying that they had 60 working days, and they were nowhere near that. Also, if Zulik was right, that meant some of the bills they had already passed, including an appropriations bill to keep the lights running, were null and void. Most Democrats just quit the session in a sign of solidarity with Zulik, but the Republicans just sort of ignored this and kept right on working. And when Wolfley arrived on scene in early April 1889, he found an even bigger problem. On his way out, Zulik decided to name a whole slate of officials for positions across the territory, making sure to appoint loyal Democrats. Which is kind of ironic, because if you remember back to episode 116, Zulik had come into the governorship to find that his predecessor had done a similar thing, appointing a whole slew of Republicans. Here again, the Republicans just sort of ignored these appointments, the end result being that pretty much every county in Arizona suddenly had two sets of officials trying to do the same job and declaring the other guys illegitimate. You can imagine the confusion and uncertainty that permeated the territory for anyone having to transact business with the government at all. Wolfley threw out a lot of means to try and use the law to extract Arizona from this situation, but ultimately it was the power of the purse that prevailed. it had to be decided in court, John Y.T. Smith of Phoenix was finally confirmed as the territorial treasurer. And that name should sound a bit familiar because we met Mr. Smith way back in episode 57, where he had the honor of being the first permanent white settler in the Salt River Valley. Anyway, once Smith got into his position as treasurer, he simply stopped the flow of money to any of the Democratic officeholders which basically left them high and dry. Now, eventually, all this is going to shake out in favor of Wolfley and the Republicans, but my favorite bit is that a man named George H. Stevens, known as Little Steve, was acting as secretary of the Territorial Prison Board. Once it became clear that the Democrats were not going to win this showdown, he took all the prison funds and fled to British Columbia. I wish I could say that it was all easy sailing for woefully after resolving these issues, which went on for more than a year by the way, but that is just not the case. First off, the elections in 1890 were very much against him and his party. This is where ardent Democrat Marcus Aurelius Smith won his first tenure as the territory's congressional delegate, and a largely democratic legislature was voted in. In fact, ex-Governor Conrad Zulik was even voted to represent Maricopa County in the council, or the upper legislative body. The smart move would have been to try and work with the other side as much as possible, or at least give lip service to the need for bipartisanship. Except that when Wolfley had been given the gig, President Harrison and others in Washington had told him that his job was to bring Arizona solidly into the Republican orbit. So he charged ahead trying to use the full weight of his Republican administration, but it accomplished little aside from splitting his own party into factions and earning him the ill will of pretty much every newspaper in the state. Undeterred, however, he went and founded his own newspaper, the Arizona Republican, which still prints today under the much less partisan name of the Arizona Republic. This would actually get him into trouble, however, as he seems to have made quite a few illegal moves to support his new paper. It soon got out that he had ordered the manager of the territorial prison in Yuma to take 10% out of the paycheck of every new employee to support the newspaper's printing. Predictably, that didn't sit well with anyone, especially the prison workers who had to shoulder the financial burden, and other newspapers. In response to this story, the Tucson Daily Citizen commented that this really was beyond the pale, even for the governor who was prone to making missteps. Those other missteps could be explained away by inexperience and quote, want of mental caliber, end quote, but this business with the Republican had no excuse. Wolfley also used his bully pulpit to rail against Mormons, accusing the church of sending large stakes of 2,000 people each to various spots in Arizona to form their own base of power. Since the Mormons would vote as a bloc, usually for Democrats but really for anyone that would protect their interests no matter their party, the governor called them, quote, a most dangerous and unscrupulous factor in politics, end quote. He would praise their industriousness but would write that they were morally and politically unwelcome. He even went so far as to call on Congress to reestablish rescinded laws that had persecuted them. To be fair to Wolfley, his short administration did have a couple of positive, or at least entertaining for us, moments. He appears to have done admirable work funding territorial bonds and reducing the interest rates to more reasonable levels, something that saved taxpayers on the order of $59,000 in annual interest. In fact, the legislature in 1895 voted to reimburse him $5,000 for personal expenses that he had accrued, because he had saved the territory more than 10 times that amount annually. I will also add that in 1890, he attended a gala in Phoenix celebrating Royal A. Johnson, who was one of the first officials to really prove that the claims made by the self-styled Baron of Arizona, James Rivas, were false. Once again, we are quickly approaching talking about Mr. Sorry, Baron Rivas and his Peralta Grant. In the end, what sunk woefully was his political intransigence, the dust-up over his newspaper, and the fact that he couldn't keep himself from writing letter after letter after letter to the U.S. Secretary of the Interior that were full of criticism of Arizona and its politics. He finally resigned his office on August 20, 1890, over a disagreement with federal arid land policy, but really, he quit before he could be fired. Wolfley served as Arizona's governor for a little less than a year and a half before the revolving door ushered him out. A New York Times article would write that what had brought him down was that he had grown a big head and thought to try and steer the Republican Party in the territory, even if that meant conflicting with party leaders in Washington. The paper wrote, quote, The local leaders of the party say that while he was a success as a meddler, he was a failure as a manager. End quote. Following his resignation, Wolfley remained in the territory, and we next find him organizing the Gila Bend Reservoir and Irrigation Company, which sought to irrigate about a million acres of land for the growing of citrus trees and other semi-tropical fruits. Unfortunately, a flood came rolling through the river, which swept away both a dam and Wolfley's hopes in the project. The rather comical aside to all this is that the former governor would pursue a claim of financial losses all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, The highest judicial body in the land actually ruled against him, but in a streak of defiance, he made a speech on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives calling on Congress to impeach all the sitting justices. Nothing came of this, of course, but it's a kind of funny and kind of sad insight into Wolfley's character. He would eventually go back into surveying, including some 414,000 acres along the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad northwest of Flagstaff. He would eventually die in Los Angeles in 1910 from injuries sustained in a streetcar crash. Okay, after all of that, the next guy has to do better, right? I mean, there's nowhere to go but up now. Well, we will see as we welcome John N. Irwin to the hot seat. To Irwin goes the dubious honor of being the last man from outside the territory to attain the governorship. He had been born in Ohio in 1843, but grew up in Iowa. After a stint in the Civil War, he practiced law for a while before going into business with his father. Eventually, he jumped from business into politics, serving first as mayor of his hometown and then in the state legislature. He was appointed to be governor of Idaho back in 1883, but after only a month in the territory, he went to Iowa to prepare his family for the move, and then several issues, including health problems, kept delaying his return, and so eight months later, he had to resign from office. He must have done a good enough job in that one month, however, because President Harrison tapped him to replace the outgoing Wolfley in October 1890. However, Irwin wouldn't even get to Arizona until the following January. The reason was, again, going home to get his family. His son apparently came down with scarlet fever, and so the whole family, including Irwin, were quarantined until a doctor gave them the thumbs up. In the meantime, the territorial legislature had begun its next session, and Territorial Secretary Nathan Oakes Murphy had been running the show. He gave the opening address, where he implored the legislators to do something about mounting territorial debt, while also either finding a way to increase revenues or decrease the government payroll. But because I find that more than a little stiff and boring, I'll quickly jump over to the fun stuff. Like how he wanted the territory of Arizona to adopt an Austrian-style secret ballot, construct a bridge across the Salt River at Phoenix, something that will factor into a coming episode, institute a reform school for incorrigible youth, prohibit gambling on the first floor of any building, and finally, ban Mexican fiestas because Americans participating in them had made them, quote, outrageous and a disgrace to the territory, end quote. See, isn't that a lot more fun? This legislature, the 16th, is also the one that called for a constitutional convention to prepare Arizona for statehood, but we talked about how well that went last week. Eventually, though, Irwin made it to the territory, and he seems to have been very well received at first. Newspaper accounts of the time laud his oratory skills, his knowledge of the territory's resources, and his desire to put the governorship above petty politics. However, that last point would actually be the source of his downfall. In an attempt to rise above the pettiness and to balance things, he began appointing Democrats to different offices— But really all this achieved was that no one in either party was entirely satisfied with him. And some of his appointments were less than laudable. Irwin himself seems to have been an honest and forthright man. In fact, while governor of Idaho, he had continued to draw a salary even though he had been stuck back at home for most of his term. And he didn't feel right about the eight months of salary that he had received when he hadn't been in the territory so he tried to return that money to the Treasury Department. Never having encountered this issue before, remember from episode 55 that they unsuccessfully hounded former Governor John N. Goodwin for money he hadn't earned, they decided to stick this money from Irwin in a fund with repentant thieves returning ill-gotten goods. However, this infuriated Irwin, who didn't want his noble act to be put in the same place as these social degenerates, so they basically took the money and used it toward the country's national debt. Anyway, that long digression was just to set up that some of Irwin's appointments were not as conscientious as him. Several were outright corrupt. His appointment to Warden of the Yuma Territorial Prison, for example, found himself under investigation for taking the furniture out of the housing provided for him when he left the job. Another strike against Irwin is that several newspapers raised considerable objections to pardons he issued after being in the territory for only about a year. Wagner says that this last point probably would not have blown up like it did if Irwin had spread them out instead of pushing them all through so close together. There seems to have been enough complaining that President Harrison accepted Irwin's resignation on April 18, 1892. Showing remarkably little bitterness for how everything went down. This letter ended with quote, I wish to thank you for your courteous treatment during my incumbency of this office and to express to you my best wishes for the continued success of your splendid administration. End quote. With that, Irwin too was swished away by the revolving door. He may have left Arizona, but not politics. Just seven years later, President William McKinley would appoint Irwin to be ambassador to Portugal. I should also note that even after he left, Irwin remained a supporter of Arizona statehood. In fact, he was the author of the quote I used last week, saying that to be a territory is vassalage, something he wrote the year after leaving office. Irwin would die in Hot Springs, Arkansas in 1905. With Irwin's departure... Arizona had gone through its second governor in four years, so it was time to see who would be appointed next. But like I mentioned, Irwin was the last of the carpetbagger governors, so everyone from here on out will be someone who had lived and worked in the territory for some time. And the man who wound up with this job is someone I already mentioned, Territorial Secretary Nathan Oakes Murphy. In fact, learning that Irwin intended to resign, Murphy had thrown his hat into the ring and had been appointed governor two weeks before Irwin sent in his resignation letter. Murphy had been born in 1849 in Lincoln County, Maine. He was mostly self-educated to start, but eventually wound up teaching school in Wisconsin for a while before drifting west to seek better opportunities. His brother had settled in Prescott and wrote Murphy about the promising area, so Murphy arrived in 1883 and quickly went into business with his sibling. Murphy's brother would become one of the biggest businessmen in northern Arizona, with tendrils reaching into mining, railroads, and mercantile stores. These connections highly recommended Murphy as someone who understood and would go to bat for Arizona, and newspapers were quick to applaud his nomination for governor. He had also served as territorial secretary under both Wolfley and Irwin, and could plausibly argue that he had actually carried the burden of running the territory when those two had been off on junkets back east. Once in the hot seat himself, he had some ideas about what to do. When the 17th legislature went into session in February 1893, he gave another opening address highlighting Arizona's financial condition. Apparently, the assessment rolls showed that not a lot of material change had happened from year to year, when everyone knew that taxable property was on the increase. Murphy argued that with the population expanding, more income was necessary to carry out the needed functions of government, including providing for public schools. To that end, he asked that the profits of mines be taxed. Another issue he took on to both improve the tax rolls and the territory's moral character was that of drinking. In his message, Murphy called for a high-license law to regulate the sale of liquors. The point was to discourage drinking and increase the reputation of saloons without affecting revenues too much. Along with liquor, he also fired shots at the broadside of gambling— looking to repeal the law licensing gambling and allowing communities on the local level to decide whether to allow it or not. Much like drinking, Murphy didn't really approve of gambling and deplored the fact that public education was so heavily financed by the taxes put on gambling halls. The whole situation was backward to him, and he wanted to fix it. Among the other things he advocated were giving women the right to vote, a reformatory school for youths, a law to allow conductors and brakemen the ability to arrest tramps in order to cut down on vagrancy, and a law to forbid Amerindians from carrying guns off the reservation. Murphy also looked at moving the territorial prison from Yuma to somewhere more centrally located, arguing that the cost to keep the prison running in its current spot was too great and that elsewhere the inmates could be used as labor. Other governors would make pushes to remove the prison as well, but it wouldn't actually happen for a couple more decades. To try and cut down cost, however, the federal government did follow up on one of Murphy's suggestions, finding land at the junction of the Colorado and Gila to be used as a prison farm. However, most of the soil for this farm was soon washed away by the unpredictable rivers, with the water rising too high in the spring to allow the cultivation of summer crops, and having too little water being around for the rest of the year to allow for the cultivation of winter crops. The prison would find more success with the manufacture and sale of adobe bricks and light clothes and shoes, but still ran into problems getting the raw materials from local private citizens. Ultimately, the failure of the prison to find constant work for the inmates factored heavily into the decision to move the prison from Yuma to Florence in the early 1900s. The great irony is that even as he made this grand speech to the legislature, Murphy was Already a dead man walking. Partisan politics can be a fickle mistress, especially when your term as governor is tied to whomever has won the presidential election. In the November 1892 election, Democrat Grover Cleveland made one of the most astonishing comebacks in American political history by defeating the incumbent President Harrison and becoming the only president elected to two non consecutive terms. So by the time the 17th legislature went into session, Murphy had less than a month left as governor. We'll actually have much more to say about Murphy in the future, so I wouldn't feel too sorry for him, because the revolving door was much nicer to him than his contemporaries. As I mentioned last week in 1893, roughly six months after leaving the governorship, he was sent to Washington, D.C. as part of the most recent bid for statehood. Then in 1894, he ran to be the territory's congressional delegate, which pitted him against Marcus Aurelius Smith. However, Arizona Democrats were in disarray, as Cleveland had appointed a more liberal and prohibitionist governor, which had Smith and his faction engaging in some inter-party squabbles. So while Smith decided to run, so did William Bucky O'Neill, the one-time Yavapai County sheriff, who was then the champion of the burgeoning populist party. But this only managed to split the Democratic vote, which helped usher Murphy into office and hand smith a very rare political defeat. As I said, we're going to deal much more with Murphy in coming episodes, so I'm going to leave things here for this week. However, before signing off, I wanted to let you in on the programming schedule for the next few weeks. So next week, April 9th, I'm going to continue our current thread and burn through at least another couple of governors as the political winds keep shifting. After that, I'm going to take kind of a left turn and I'm going to cover the Salt River, especially the Great Flood of 1891, the worst of its kind, and some other odd topics I've just been meaning to get to. I will warn you that that particular episode might be a bit shorter than usual, mainly because that weekend I will be attending the Arizona History Convention, which runs from April 13th through the 15th. I'm planning on being at some of the live sessions on Saturday, April 15th in Tempe, so if you're planning on being there too, definitely say hello. The only downside is that time for the podcast will definitely be in short supply. Once we are past all that, then I think it's finally time to dive headfirst into the long, sordid tale of James Addison Rivas, the self-proclaimed Baron of Arizona for as many episodes as it takes to unravel his truly breathtaking Land Con. That's the idea I have in my head right now, so I hope it makes you curious enough to keep coming back. Until next week, I'm your host, David Rakausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.